0: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. And today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Andrew Snyder about Critical Bass, Street Carnival and Musical Activism in Olympic Rio de Janeiro, published by Wesleyan University Press in 2022. Critical Brass* tells the story of neofanfarrismo, An explosive carnival brass band community turned activist musical movement in Rio de Janeiro as Brazil shifted from a country on the rise in the 2000s to one beset by various crises in the 2010s. Though predominantly middle class, neofanfahistas have creatively adapted the critical theories of carnival to militate for a more democratic city, illuminating the tangible obstacles to musical movement building. Andrew Snyder argues that festive activism with privileged origins can promote real alternatives to the neoliberal city, but meets many limits and contradictions in a society marked by diverse inequalities. Dr. Andrew Snyder is a U.S. American living in Portugal as a research fellow in the Institute of Ethnomusicology at the Universidade Nova de Lisboa. Since finishing his PhD at UC Berkeley in 2018 in ethnomusicology, he has increasingly worked as an editor, having co-edited the books Honk, a street band renaissance of music and activism in 2020, and at the crossroads, music and social justice in 2022. He's also a trumpet player, and he has played with many of the groups he studies that uh, we're going to talk about here today. Andrew, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: So in the book's acknowledgments, you say that the, quote... The prospect that a growing internationally connected brass band movement that seeks to claim public space, spread inclusive musical education, and militate for a different world even existed in Rio de Janeiro was far from your mind when you started uh, graduate school in 2010. So I want to know what happened. and this brings me to the question that I always like to start these interviews with. I want to know uh, how your book came about or what is your book's origin
1: story? So you mentioned that I'm a trumpet player. Um, but at the time in 2010, uh, I think I was trying to mention my naivety in relationship to this project. Uh, I wasn't even playing trumpet. I was playing guitar. I had majored in um, in music and I played piano. But I, I had left trumpet Um, in high school, where I had played a lot uh, um, in bands and um, high school band, jazz bands, but I had really kind of stopped playing. The thing that brought me back was the explosion of the Occupy Wall Street movement um, in 2011, which is now starting to be a bit of history because this was 12 years ago. But what Occupy Wall Street emerged uh, in relationship as a reaction to the Austerity crisis um, of the 2008 banking crisis, and as you know, many people went out to camp uh, in Zuccotti Square in New York. And this method of occupying space went all over the U.S. and all over the world. And there were various protests. So I started going to these protests when I was in the ba- when I was in the Bay Area in California, where I was doing where I was going to graduate school in ethnomusicology, looking for a project. Not really sure what I was going to do, and. I was going to these protests and I kept on seeing this brass band in the streets, mobilizing protesters, giving them chants, feeding them uh, lines to fit the occasion of protesting. And I I found this really emotionally impactful, the fact that this group of people with brass instruments was able to mobilize so many people. And I was thinking, well, I, I don't know if I could really join these people because of, this looks like a really cool great group and I haven't played trumpet forever. And even though I'm studying music, I'm not sure if they would accept me, but I went up and talked to them and they're like, you play trumpet, great. Um, so I got out my trumpet, I started playing with them and I soon found myself playing in protests all over the Bay Area and uh, became part of the group. Um, and I started to shift my thinking in term, terms of what is the impact of music in public space? How can music become a t- tangible impact on people's bodies. Now, none of this has to do with Brazil, right? But I ended up going to uh, a festival called Honk in Boston, which is which became a meetup point, and this will this is the festival network that will come back um, for me in very surprising ways. Uh, so I went to this this Honk a- festival of activist street bands in Boston, um, and that first year I, I didn't, I again, I nothing to do with Brazil, but then I was look, I was in that network. And I heard about this band in 2013 that had been asked to come to Boston uh, for that honk edition. So I followed that. Um, I was interested in Brazilian music as a jazz musician, um, but my, my contacts with Brazil were very weak at the time. But I was, again, looking for a project, and I thought that this would be an interesting way to connect things. And in 2013, I went down, I went to Rio de Janeiro, I met with this group, and it happened to be 2013, which I will come back to. June 2013 was a massive moment of protests. And I found that some many of the same kinds of ways of thinking about music um, as manifesting and mobilizing people in public space for various causes. Uh, we're happening there, but with many different uh, important uh, differences, namely way more people in the streets, way more festivity, way more intensity and crucially connected to the carnival tradition.
0: Yes. So just uh, have to let folks know that the connection here is that I'm a Brazilian studying U.S. carnival and you are a U.S. American studying Brazilian carnival, and I think that's awesome. And I've been learning so much uh, about Brazilian carnival with you. has been uh, amazing.
1: And you, from reading your book, also.
0: But maybe some of the folks that are listening to us don't really know much about, uh, the, you know, Brazil, Brazilian carnival. So let's start with some basic definitions here. What are blocos de rua or street carnival? Uh, I think a lot of people, when they think about Rio, Rio de Janeiro's carnival specifically, they think about escolas de Samba, that, that grandiose uh, spectacle. And Carnaval de Rio is quite different. So uh, explain a little bit about what that means. Yeah, Sure,
1: I agree. I think that um, for someone outside of Brazilian uh, cultural context, the if you talk about Brazilian carnival, maybe you'll have uh, an image of passistas or cultural dancers, um, maybe massive drum ensembles, uh, and they might be thinking of the spectacle that is the Samba School Parade. And th- this is an amazing tradition that brings thousands of people in each school to compete but what is perhaps not of the streets and why people don't talk about it not are not referring to that when they're talking about street carnival is that it happens in uh with this structure called the sambodromo um which is uh expensive it's a spectator space it um has become increasingly commercialized um so street carnival is a term that refers to everything that is outside of that now samba schools of course also come from the streets and We can think of all of of these cultural manifestations as originally a part of a street carnival but because of that division that has happened in the past several decades um street carnival has really been kind of thinking of itself in some ways as an alternative sometimes even oppositional to this kind of commodified and spectacle carnival so uh the term bloco which you mentioned the groups that we'll be talking about call themselves blocos they are I, i always I define them usually as mobile participatory musical ensembles. Now, they're not always mobile. Sometimes they're stationary. They're participatory in the sense that there are many ways of interacting with them and being an audience member, dressing up in a costume or fantasia. They might be more or less participatory in the sense of who can play. Some groups you can just show up and play. Some groups are very structured. A bloco could be a group of friends with a pandero walking down the street. A bloco could also be Bola Preta, which has two million people in the streets. So it's a really expansive term. It's a really generic term. But the thing to keep in mind is that this sort of free, relatively spontaneous, relatively informal manifestation of people in public space, uh, is very distinct from the very formalized, very disciplined um, street, samba school model. Um, and this is a, today we're talking about a huge number of people, uh, a huge number of groups, by some estimations, 500 or so official blocos in Rio. And then there are the unofficial ones that don't subscribe or inscribe themselves in the rules. Um, so we're talking about massive musical manifestations that are relatively uncontrolled compared to the samba schools.
0: Well, the the other uh, I think concept we need to explain uh, so that uh, folks can en- understand a little bit more what we're going to talk about next is neo Um uh, What is neo and how does it relate to Hughes uh, Carnival?
1: neo is a term that, as I understand it, was coined by one of my main interlocutors, but it's a term that kind of has filtered filtered through the air um, in the past, say, 15 years in Rio. Um, and so if you just listen to the word neo fanfarrismo, so the fanfare, or fanfare, that refers to brass bands. Um, so what I, what I was looking at specifically were the brass bands. I talked about 500 blocos. I'm only talking about a little small section of this world, um, this this brass and percussion tradition. Uh, so there is a brass and percussion tradition in Rio. There are many in Brazil, and there are many that are associated with carnival. Uh, the most iconic uh, and technically impressive is probably from Hissifi, definitely from Hissifi. Uh, Frevo. But there's a tradition There are various traditions in, in Rio as well So the fanfajas, brass bands Neo, meaning some kind of new Innovation on the f- Brass band tradition um, Which we can talk about And ismo, I think that this is where I'm I'm getting this idea that neo is a kind of social movement Is They use a kind of Ism, neo Or neo fanfarism, Which I think has a kind of Implication of a of a, not just being a, a scene, but a kind of having a political ideology. Um, so this is this is something that comes out of the brass band tradition that is in carnival um, and innovates both in an aesthetic and a, a ethical way. The first two
0: chapters examine transformations and the emergence of neo movement from the brass blocos of the street carnival revival and the band's changing repertoires. Uh, I want you to talk a little bit about that. And you've started to explain this, but what is this tradition that they're trying to revive uh, or, as some folks say, their rescue, and I'm using rescue with air quotes, but uh, what changed in their priorities over time as well?
1: Yeah, rescue is a translation of the word Hezgatar, right? Um, and it's a term that people would would use. So thinking about rescuing, recycling, renewing, reviving. Um, so I mentioned the newness of, of Neofan but that's a little bit in op- opposition to um, the initial urge of this, uh, this brass uh, movement in the 1990s and 2000s to revive uh, certain repertoires and certain ways of playing and thinking about carnival. Now, so we haven't talked yet about this this notion of revival, which is really important. So I said, Samba schools, we can think of as originally having come out of uh, a street carnival tradition, but the way that this was always explained to me was that if you're say a young person growing up in the 1990s, uh, say especially a middle-class person kind of outside of the Samba school movement, the way that people talked about this was that there was relatively little carnival. The carnival was a time to travel. It was a time to leave Rio. It was not a time to stay and participate and create something. So there was this sense of carnival uh, being dead. And if you go back a little further, the way that this was explained to me was that this this very much had to do with Brazil's military dictatorship, which uh, as you know, uh, began in 1964 and went until 1985. And the military dictatorship was highly repressive. And this, again, the way this was explained to me, because I was not there, um, was not even alive, let alone in Brazil, but that uh, the large groups of people organizing and being in public space were seen with skepticism, uh, that things were had to be much more ordered, that uh, there was censorship. There were um, all of these elements that were a bit, counter to the carnival spirit, or what they, what people talked about as a kind of carnival spirit. And carnival groups play, actually play a role in, uh, in being part of the redemocratization protests uh, in the early 1980s, and then they come out, and there's a certain politicization uh, in them as they start to grow and uh, grow again in the 1980s, uh, 1990s, 2000s. Ever since in the past three decades, I mean, we're really talking about a progressive and exponential growth um, in uh, music, uh, in this sort of car- street carnival, which, again, there was this view of the Samba schools having been kind of co-opted, taken, commercialized, uh, even a product of music. Uh, Sort of ideological product of of military governors, the uh, military government, and uh, so the street carnival kind of represents this alternative and potentially oppositional movement. One that was uh, clamped down upon, and many people talk about having died uh, during the dictatorship and having rebirth. So, what is it? What are they uh, renewing? What are they reviving? So, in the case of the brass ensembles, they talked about the sort of the importance of the machine genre especially which machinists have always been in the air but i think uh the this is a military march uh descendant ironic ludic um fun genre of songs that are played by brass ensembles and people sing at the same time um so there was this and, and it predates the samba schools as well and we have uh going back to late 19th century Abriales by Shikin Gozaga. So a really old uh, manifestation of Rio's uh, musical culture done by brass bands. And so people uh, revive this uh, tradition. They also, some of the more technical groups uh, revive sh- uh, Shoro um, as played by brass bands. Shoro is an instrumental genre um, that kind of comes up at the same time that jazz comes up in uh, the United States. You also have a sort of beginning to want to re- to not just revive, but play other genres. Like I mentioned Frevo from Recife, which is a city in the Northeast. Some of these genres, uh, these groups are starting to play that. So it really starts off with this kind of nationalist and very city-based preoccupation, but nationalist in the sense of wanting to revive traditions that are authentically Brazilian, right? Um, and I think that, that that sort of is a critical nationalism because uh, it was not... It, it's not the dictatorship's version of nationalism. It's wanting to revive this this repressed tradition of going out into the streets with your friends, with a group, with some instruments, and playing uh, a bunch of songs that are older, but renewing and recontextualizing them in this new context of the turn of the millennium, Rio.
0: So... As a, a Brazilian, it's 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 been amazing. Like to me, really interesting reading your book and uh, and seeing how you make sense of some things that I took for granted and I didn't quite uh had a name how to uh, uh, for how to uh, I could explain this. One thing I was really uh, interested in here is. Uh, when you talk about, quote, the alternative as an identity rooted in race and class. So uh, I wanted you to explain how you're using the term alternative whiteness and what do you mean by the uh, stri- strategy of this inheritance. Again, I was really interested in your discussion of the race and class dynamics between neo and and escola de samba. And as somebody who uh, whose racial identity seems to shift when I move from Brazil to the global north, I really appreciated your uh, discussion of this alternative whiteness in Brazil.
1: Well, thanks. This is a really hard—it's uh, a really hard territory and territory that was uh, that I often felt uncomfortable discussing, but, but but felt that it was also uncomfortable because I I also didn't feel like I knew how, I had the terms to to do it, and uncomfortable because I'm a white American um, in a different cultural space. Um, so starting with the idea of alternative um I kind of mentioned this before but I think there's various ways that we can see this as part of an alternative culture um a, in the sense of being you know independent and and wanting to be less mainstream and um and wanting to be DIY um these groups are very much self-produced they're produced with very little money. There are groups of people putting on costumes, just, you know, taking a stake and putting up a banner and creating a, a standachi or a standard, and bringing some musicians out into the streets and can can bring lots of people together. This is a kind of um, what what people understood to be an you know, alternative spirit. When I asked people further, okay, so who are these people? Um, people would also often say that there's the alternative middle class and especially the alternative middle class of zona sul or the south zone of Rio, right? So there's a very, kind of specific group of people. Zona Sul, the South Zone is a middle class um, neighborhood that is not the favelas, though there are favela- there are favelas in the area. But when you talk about South Zone, you're talking about the middle class and you're talking about, yeah, when you're talking about alternative, you're not talking about the right wing. You're not talking about conservatives. Um, who we'll discuss, right, uh, very ascendant in the 2010s. So alternative middle class. But, of course, uh, class and race are connected, especially in a society that was colonized by Europeans and and experienced mm-hmm. slavery and the legacies of slavery. So the middle class is whiter uh, than uh, than popular classes, right? Um, so I tried to develop a vocabulary around this, despite the fact that people didn't really often talk about it in this way. They were much more likely to talk about it in terms of cl- um, in terms of class uh, differences. Um, and this, I think, relates to not just Brazil, but in much of Latin America, you have these mythologies that are based on a kind of mixing, a valorization of the mixing of the cultures, and in that valorization, a kind of of forgetting, intentional forgetting, right, uh, or erasure of the very real inequalities. So the 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 idea of using whiteness was to refer and to and refer to those inequalities and and really position this group of people as a relatively privileged group of people. So they're they're as we'll talk about, they're thinking of themselves as practicing a kind of musical activism, but they're very much doing so from a relatively positioned situa- situatedness um, within Rio. And so I, I talk about whiteness as a sort of an idea and a category, but of course not all the people who participate in this group, uh, in, in these kinds of groups, um, are white uh, or would think of themselves as white or would be read as white. So I, I try to use the term also whiter and blacker. And these are very imperfect terms, but to really kind of uh, ref- Point out, point out the fact that this is a spectrum this is a racial spectrum right these are not uh, fixed absolute racial identities so that was the idea of alternative whiteness, and really trying to position uh, these these groups of people in their in their cultural racial um, class space um, disinheritance this is a term another term that I kind of struggled with but ultimately um, decided to use because what well, we talked about um, the movement of, uh, of these groups, these band, and especially these brass band groups and the street carnival in general, initially to re- try to revive um, col- uh, cultural traditions and musical genres they felt had been either forgotten or erased. And so the idea of disinheritance uh, doesn't really fit there because I would say that's a kind of re-inheritance, right? It's kind of a retaking of what uh, is thought of um, as one's own, a very, a kind of nationalist movement. But in the, in the t- mid-2000s, and this is really where this brass brand revival movement becomes neo and the newness of it, is there is a real, uh, there's a shift in aesthetics and desire in terms of um, what of what to play. And this idea that uh, I, I would always hear is we're going to play whatever. We're going to play anything that we want. So really moving beyond this idea that Carnival is necessarily national, is necessarily city-based, is necessarily even traditional, Um, but the Carnival is a space for innovation, playing international repertoires, playing with instrumental formats, um, playing with all kinds of expressive repertoires. And so Neo-Fanfoyismo becomes a brass tradition or a brass movement uh, that is playing all kinds of different repertoires. Uh, So you have other brass traditions from around the world, Balkan brass, New Orleans, as well as pop music uh, in Brazilian, as well as international. Um, You have uh, global pop music. Afrobeat becomes really, uh, from Nigeria, uh, becomes a really popular thing to play. Um, So you have what I would say is a disinheriting of uh, the sort of carnival tradition in that. Um, And I I really also was using that that term, disinheriting in relationship to kind of a heritage studies way of of thinking about this. If the heritage of carnival that's passed on is Samba, and if if that heritage is kind of understood as as Blacker, as an Afro-Brazilian tradition, um, then there's a way of positioning oneself to that heritage and that tradition that is um, a kind of rejection on the on the part of these groups. Now they're also dialoguing with it, and this is where it's a it's a it's a tense attention. Um, they still use Brazilian rhythms and they still use all kinds of different traditions that are very much from Brazil. Um, and there's a sort of reclaiming in that. So the other term that I use a lot is cannibalism, and this is also something that people in the in the movement would talk about, um, which is a term that is a really prominent, one in Brazilian musical traditions and um, popular music and the arts and the avant-garde and refers to this idea that what is unique and and really creative in in Brazil is a sort of mode of cultural production is its openness, not only to itself, but to the world and a sort of taking and eating of the world and regurgitating or not regurgitating, but literally transforming that and the process of digestion into something that is authentically Brazilian. It's a gruesome metaphor, but one that people use a lot, as you know. Um, and so people would use this to talk about neo As So these brass bands, they're coming from the, the tradition of the Brazilian carnival, but they start to dialogue with these groups um, that are coming from other places and they eat or consume these influences and transform them and make it into something new.
0: One of the things that I was uh, very impressed here is how you managed, um, it was this ability that you had to explain the hot mess of Brazilian social, political, historical context of the 2010s, I commend you for that because I have a hard time every time people ask me to explain it. But that's where you, you, you're placing, right, this story, this movement, in, uh, as you call here, a severe political crisis in Brazil. Again, if in case uh, anybody uh, who's listening to this isn't very familiar with uh, what was going on in Brazil at the time, could you try to summarize it for us?
1: I can try. And one thing that I think helps me uh, helps me understand it is the fact that, you know, I felt like Brazil was on a bit of a parallel track in terms of being in a hot mess in the 2010s to the U.S., Um, in so many ways, uh, that it just felt like this sort of moment of hope at the beginning of the to- 2010s was kind of opened up, and this is from a left perspective. And with it, with these protests that were very critical and seemed um, impactful, and sort of a closure of that, and then a sort of opening of a very dark period. So I'll try. Uh, more broadly, I would say that the book is tra- is kind of a story of transformation of these groups. Um, told alongside this political history. And so we've been talking about kind of the aesthetics, but the, the politics and the neo, the newness of neo and being ismo as a kind of social movement is really critical to how I understand it as well. So um, we talked about the military dictatorship ending in 1985. There's a re, uh, re-democratization. There's a new constitution. There's uh, 1980s and 1990s are sort of difficult economic uh, periods um, in this redemocratization process. But uh, by 2002, you get something that's never happened before, which is that a leftist and a an avowed socialist wins the presidency. is Lula da Silva um, and the Workers' Party. Um, and he is comes from a very leftist credentials of unions background, Um, but he ends up governing in many ways as a centrist, in many ways by necessity to maintain political coalitions. And he generates this kind of amazing consensus. And this consensus is not only his popularity, but it's also uh, the fact that Brazil was improving economically, basically. Um, And this was based on a commodities boom uh, that was not permanent. Um, but by the time that Lula leaves, uh, the number I have in my head is that he had 87% uh, approval. Obama called him the most popular, uh, the the most popular politician in the world. So if we think of the 2010s as a period of kind of a generation of consensus, um, then the two then 2010s is a period of growing dissensus and polarization. One of the things that came out of con- this consensus was the awarding. Um, of both the world cup and the olympics to brazil in the same decade two years apart 2014 for a world cup and 2016 uh for the olympics in rio and this just turned out to be when i was doing my field work i lived there between 2014 and 2016. um and i didn't actually see either of those i got there right after uh the world cup and left right before but um these events were were very, had a huge impact. Right before I got there, and the first time I, I went to Brazil, I mentioned these 2013 protests. Uh, these were uh, very much articulated in relationship to these mega events. The economic progress that had grown under Lula had begun to reverse. Lula was no longer president, rather his successor. The same party, Dilma Rousseff, the um, first woman, President of Brazil was in charge, but there was beginning to be some dissatisfaction and this kind of exploded in 2013. Many people also saw it as an outgrowth of um, the Occupy movement uh, or as a reverberation. Other movements uh, that were against austerity, indignados in Spain... Um, is very much like a sort of glo- moment of global critique of austerity and the way that this was expressed in relationship to mega events. or we're paying all this money for this mega events and these stadiums are removing people from favelas? They're a huge expense. Yet, the where's the investment? Where's the uh, focus on on public services and structure uh, in an avowedly socialist or at least left center left party? And so this was the kind of the message that exploded in 2013. So this this moment also becomes a moment uh, that appears very hopeful, but ends up also generating a kind of backlash. Um, And this backlash starts to grow. And this is in no this is also uh, this this only gets worse with the Operation Car Wash scandal um, that starts to raise questions about uh, the Workers Party as well as many other people in the government. And uh, so Brazilian politics kind of takes this turn, um, and in 2016, Gilman Rousseff is actually impeached in what many people feel to be a coup, um, a sort of le- a legislative coup.
0: Let me just uh, just to, for the record, uh, I, I believe Foi Golpe. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I also believe it was a golpe, right? But some people would not call it a Golpe. But I, I, I think it I didn't fit it didn't fit the traditional image, right, of a Golpe. And of a Golpe in, in or a coup in Latin America or Brazil, which is a military dictatorship taking over. It was a parla- it was a use of parliamentary tactics to take out the president. And the vice president, coming from a coalition, was from the right, um, then turned out to take over uh which is not a system one would have in the u.s right because where they're from the same party no the vice president was from a different party and so it was very convenient to use this mechanism this in the coup to take over um then a a period of austerity begins in the united states trump is elected and brexit happens in the uk so not just sort of this right-wing austerity neoliberal austerity but this uh this much scarier authoritarian populist um, version of, of politics comes uh, and comes to Brazil and Bolsonaro, who has been in, in politics for a long time, but but then becomes uh, rides this wave ends up winning the presidency in 2018, very much thought of as a kind of Trump quote unquote Trump of the tropics and governs in very, very similar ways uh, to Trump and When he was defeated, there was even also uh, a uh, rushing or an invasion of um, Brazilian capital buildings, right? Similar to what happened in January 6th in in 2021. So when I said that, I just felt like there was these parallel tracks of the US and Brazil run, um, that's what I meant. And and also Bolsonaro was defeated, right? Lula has, has now come back. So we're in a new uh we're we're in a new moment. And I'm glad that I was able to finish and publish this book before that happens because, because we don't know how, how things are gonna go right now. But um but the, the sort of whole frame of the book is thinking about neofonfahismo as a movement that becomes more and more political in this process of polarization over the course of the, pa- of the past decade or so.
0: So, as you were saying, right, how did the neo Fahista movement become socially and politically engaged in this context that you just described? And uh, how is this then um, connected to an increased diversity of the participants of the movement?
1: Yeah, so I got there in 2014, and 2013 was very much fresh in people's minds. And these were major, major protests, right? Um, The biggest mobilization um, in years. Uh, And the way that people described it is, whereas Carnival had sort of critical aspects and, you know, playing in the streets could be thought of as activists in the way it you know, democratizes public space. And whereas there's a a critique of the mode of production that the Samba schools represent, we could think of all of that as also kind of apolitical and ludic um, and fun, even if, uh, you know, all of culture is political, this wasn't culture necessarily that was oppositional or that manifested itself in that way. Um, But 2013, people talk about as a marking point um, where... A lot of groups went to play in the protests, uh, as I had said. They they played in support of various causes. So there's these kinds of l- lines in the sand that start to be drawn, and this process, I believe, only only becomes stronger and stronger as these crises grow, right? So then you have an impeachment process so the coup. And so the, the bands start to play in favor of democracy, even if the, like, not everyone loves Dilma, but, but there's a desire at least to stave off the right, and then the, and then the right succeeds. And so uh, then there's protests against uh, the various, uh, there was an attempt to shut down the Ministry of Culture, right? Uh, and, the group, and the groups played for these protests and occupied the Ministry of Culture so these bands become increasingly politically involved in very objective ways. They, they make, they go to protests, they post on social media, they make signs, they, they politicize carnival. Also, they start to uh, bring these kinds of repertoires and oppositional attitudes and expressive tactics to a space that could be thought of as kind of apolitical or at least not demonstrably oppositional. Yeah. Over this period, the groups become more political in that sense. But they also, I think, become political in the sense of questioning their own uh, identities as a movement, and I, I mean, sort of class, racial, gender identities. We talked about alternative whiteness, alternative middle class. Also, a lot of these groups were initially very, very male, but in the mid-2000s, and this that was the time that I was there, there were a couple things that happened. One was a, uh, the founding of a group um, called Dames de Ferro. Or the Iron Ladies. Uh, this is the first uh, all-women group in this movement. Now there are, I believe, about five. Um, so that there's been an explosion of female participation in the movement. Uh, another thing that happened, I believe, also in twenty fourteen, was the founding of a group called Favela Bras, which was all actually founded by an English, uh, an Englishman who lives in Rio and an uh, English trumpet player, um, Tom Ash. Uh, who went and lived in a favela in the center of of rio and started uh teaching children to play and has now generated this group that plays in um that that plays regularly um so these were these are two examples that i used to talk about the desire to reach beyond gender lines and reach beyond class and racial lines and that i think those conversations were very um Present When I was there, people are, you know, carnival is, we talk, think about it as inclusive and participatory and democratic. And so these groups are, well, how does, how does that actually manifest itself? How can we make it more democratic uh, or inclusive? Um, One of the most interesting products that I've seen Come up and this was this started after my field work ended in 2016 but the the main group i should have mentioned by now that i worked with is called orchestra voadora and they are a massive group and a massive group as a as a as a bloco there are about 400 musicians but this is a a group that is run by a band that could, this is about 15 musicians so you have 15 professional musicians who play shows and they have a weekly class or what is called an officina and all many groups have a class where they teach musicians, uh, in many cl- cases, new, new musicians. Um, people have never played an instrument to play with them. So there's this expansion of musical interest, Um, and this is another way that music starts to, uh, interest in participation. It's another way that music starts to reach beyond, um, these various, uh, social divisions. And uh, some sort of the women's groups start to, to play uh, coming out of that. But one of the most interesting projects of Orquesta in the past few years has been uh, an attempt to change uh, practices, um, structure, and the whole setup of the bloco to be inclusive people with disabilities. And, of course, people with disabilities is a, is a category that is itself very diverse. Um, so they've really been trying to think about uh, this from... The perspective of people who are already in the group and their needs, their access needs to be a part of a uh, part of this, but also to publicize the idea of carnival needing to be accessible to to people with disabilities um, and to from a very anti ableist perspective. And they talk, they they speak in this language. I mean, this is we talked about it being middle class, It's a high, highly educated movement um, in a major global city, so. uh, Having having access to sort of language of anti ableism right um, is part of this movement. Um, But what I what I think is is amazing is really using those ideas to change carnival practices. So this is something that started during the pandemic and has continued um, in various ways during the pandemic uh, and is continuing now. Um, And their last uh, their last. Carnival theme was actually the future is anti-ableist. So you see, there's various ways of thinking about their politics in a sort of very objective oppositional way, but also all of these ways of trying to democratize, diversify, and be more inclusive uh, as a musical movement.
0: But you also show uh, that there were some challenges and even some shortcomings uh, to that process. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. So and middle class movement, I think is a great example of a middle class movement is not going to change the world by itself. Right. And the reason I really try to call attention to the the class and racial situatedness of these groups of people is that they're reaching across these these boundaries. But, you know, that doesn't itself uh, deconstruct, (laughs) of course, doesn't construct um, racism or sexism or uh, homophobia or ableism. Um, so these are inherently limited actions. Uh, the many of those many of the structures of inequality that we see in this society at large continue to manifest themselves in, in the neo-famfaism movement. That being said, I think that there has grown, uh, especially during this period of polarization, a desire, an authentic, genuine desire, not on the part of everyone, but on the part of key people who have managed to make um, new critical projects happen to, to really uh, do something new and think about Carnival as a kind of activist. Um, Carnival is a, poten- as a potential space for activist projects that are critical of society.
0: Well, uh, since you, you used, you know, you're already talking about Carnival uh, conceptually, uh, I cannot... You're just almost like legally obligated to, if you're talking about carnival theory, to ask you about that old debate that has animated uh, the field of carnival studies. I know we, we've we sort of moved past that, but you're making an interesting contribution to it. So I'm talking here more specifically this this debate over whether carnival subverts or reinforces the status quo. I think we've sort of agreed as a, as a collective of Carnival scholars that it can be both. But you, you note here that this debate fails to engage with an important question, a quote, how do the ideals of Carnival inspire political and social engagement? So tell us um, how is that and how your book is dealing with that, how you position yourself and the book within those debates.
1: Yeah, you're right. I think a book like this that's talking about Carnival as potentially political cannot fail to at least note the fact that this is a big part of um, how we have historically tried to understand carnival. Is it something that is um, resistant in the sense of, of really it's, it's spirit. I think is the, there's a lot of elements of the discourse around carnival as being resistant, turning the world upside down, inverting structures And the response to that, right, is like, well, but all of that is uh, it's 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 kind of like a a weekend. It allows the week, the work week, to function. You need to give people time off in order for them to at least the minimum amount of time off to blow steam, to be productive, Um, and that that is a part of a governing process, right? So that's the response, right? Is it resistant or is it actually just? end up uh, restructuring society along the same lines reinforcing the status quo and as you said I think that we now think that there you know it can be both uh, as our colleague Ohli Godet, says it's indeterminate um, it's carnival is not inherently anything right um, it can manifest itself in various different ways uh, but the idea that you referred to carnival ideals inspire political social engagement so this really came to me from one quote when that I really begin the book with, where one of my interlocutors talked about, um, well, Bakhtin, who's this famous uh, carnival theorist, and really the main person people talk about uh, when they think about carnival as subversive. Bakhtin thinks that carnival is subversive, and so carnival should be subversive. That is what carnival is, right? So, so the idea is not to take it ethically or an outside perspective of carnival and say, this is what carnival is. Um, we can see that activism is happening in this space, so it's Bakhtinian. But no, like they're actually referring to Bakhtin, they're thinking about carnival in this way. So in that sense, it's performative. It's discourse that enacts um, a kind of reality. And so that was really uh, impressive to me in the sense of, of really the theory, the theory behind the actions um, and the way that the actions also kind of end up justifying and reinforcing this kind of theory. Uh, about carnival being subversive. The other thing that was impressive was the fact that this person is citing Bakhtin, right? Bakhtin is not something that is not a person that um, every carnival musician is necessarily going to know. It's a uh, you know humanities and social science uh, famous reference, but you um, really need to be kind of within those debates to to know who this person is. Um, but this person did, and that really reinforced also kind of this is a middle class movement. This is a group of people. Um, many of whom are highly educated, have access to education, not, I mean, and and there's inequalities and and disparate experiences within that, but but there there is this important kind of class uh, element to consider. so so using that that citation, I can kind of also opened that point of of thinking about the situatedness of of the movement. But that was the attempt, I guess, of trying to intervene in this long debate of is carnival um, subversive, or is it not? Well, maybe it's subversive if people think it is and they enact it to be as such.
0: So, your final chapter is talking about uh, the honk. Movement And you characterize the, the founding of the Honk Rio Festival as this consolidation of the, the musical social movement. Tell us how and why is that? But I think first you would have to give us a little, a brief introduction to the global Honk movement. You sort of mentioned, right, that you, were, that's how, was your entry way into this subject and in, in this research. But tell us a bit about that.
1: Exactly. This is where we come full circle. Because in in 2012, I go to this uh, festival in Boston and I'm introduced to this idea of a network of brass bands that play play musically eclectic genres and maybe think about themselves as in some way activists. And then I hear about this group in, in Rio and then I go to Rio and in 2014, they're talking about playing... Uh, starting their own honk and in 2015 they do so honk as a movement starts in boston in 2006 uh it's really a consolidation point for a lot of uh groups in the united states that have been playing music on the streets um against er the iraq war protests this sort of idea of a kind of diy uh brass band festival starts to become uh more and more uh interesting as some of these groups play, and they want to do their own festival. Um, so this this idea of a, of a honk festival starts to go to various places in the United States. And in 2015, it starts to go international in both Brazil and Australia, incidentally. Uh, since then, we find some manifestation of honk on ev- literally every continent, including Australia, because they participated in an online event during the pandemic. But otherwise every, every um, continent now has some connection to this idea of um, a festival of activist brass bands. So as we talked about, these brass bands coming out of Carnival uh, had already been thinking about uh, themselves as practicing a kind of critical activist uh, musical, musical new take on this tradition of the brass band uh, that is inherently militant, right? The brass band is uh, potentially inherently political, but this is a subversion of that and uh, a group had gone to, to Honk in, uh, in Boston. And so I come and I show up in Rio and they're talking about Honk there. It was this kind of amazing expression of, of globalization in, the, in a good sense where this very marginal uh, unknown festival uh, is being talked about in a completely different city in a completely different country. So uh, this idea of uh, of a honk festival in Rio, I thought was maybe just kind of hot water. Like, is this really going to happen? This is a massive undertaking. But after the 2015 carnival uh, ended in, in February, people started talking about it. And they started theorizing, thinking about what would it mean to do this kind of um, originally American festival in uh, Brazil. What kind of language do we need to Create and they sort of they actually use publicly this idea of cannibalization, like the cannibalizing the festival. They're eating this outside influence and taking it in and transforming it, um, and mixing it with what is what is authentically Brazilian and carnival and and so they generate this uh, this whole discourse and public image about brass bands being um, activists. They call it the Honquehue Festival de activists Activistas or the Honk Rio a Festival of Activist Brass Bands. Um, so that in that sense, it consolidates the movement around activism in a very public way. It consolidates uh, the idea of a brass band as being very international. Groups from the United States come, Groups a group from Chile came, and a group from uh, France came. So in that very first instantiation, it was uh, very international. My group, this was another moment of coming full circle, but a group that I had co-founded called Mission Delirium. I managed to help them. Uh, well, we collectively uh, organized a tour to participate in the in this first festival, first edition of Honk. And, uh, and so it was this international meeting. So in that sense, uh, I talk about it as a moment of consolidation, and I use it to end the book, which is a, for me, the whole book is a story of transformation, of a, of a movement that begins in Street Carnival that is not necessarily political to one that is very musically eclectic and internationally minded and very politically minded. Um, and so Honk really represents that, that, that change. And now, 2015, now that's eight years ago. <laughs> for God's sake, uh, Honk has spread as a, a, a movement in Brazil. There are festivals in Sao Paulo, in Porto Alegre, in Brasilia. Uh, I believe there are at least five now um, in, Rio, in in Brazil. So this whole neo movement, also since I was in Brazil, has spread to other cities in Brazil. So uh, from a sort of outside perspective, have, have seen... Uh, the movement grow. But then Honk, as, a, as an idea, which is an American idea, has really become crucial to, uh, to this movement and to really transforming, in, in turn, uh, Carnival in Brazil. It's kind of this amazing, for me, obviously, amazing story of globalization in a, in a good sense.
0: But before we go, uh, can you share with us uh, your new projects? What are you working on next? Of course, other than uh, joining us at the Journal of Festive Studies, I wanted to just give a a very quick, shameless plug. I joined the Journal of Festive Studies as a co-editor for the forthcoming issue, number five, and you are joining us for number six. So... Now that I got the the shameless plug out of the way, tell us what you've been working on uh, since this book.
1: Thanks. I'm super excited to be uh, to be joining Journal of Festive Studies. I was actually able to um, publish a, an article about these groups' response to the pandemic in in that journal, uh, where they mobilize people to do what they the opposite of what they usually do subvert the meaning of carnival. Uh, and tell people to actually stay home and not go to the streets. And so I, was, I wrote about that for the Journal of Festival Studies. And I'm really excited to be also um, working as an editor in the near future. So I, as you mentioned, I'm in, now I'm in Portugal. I'm doing a postdoc in Portugal, um, which we haven't talked about since. Uh, but yeah, the, the, this connection to Brazilian studies is the reason that I wound up um, doing this postdoc in Portugal. Um, and I'll be here for at least a, a few more years. The project that I ended up uh, pursuing was to talk about street carnival, the street carnival, the Brazilian street carnival that's uh, emerging in Lisbon. Um, so a lot of the same kinds of groups, not exactly neo but a bit more diverse uh, collection of, of groups that have come and really in the past. Uh, eight years or so as a lot of, well, the Brazilian alternative middle class has some has been uh, migrating and leaving in, uh, during this period of political crisis. Um, and there's also Brazilian uh, immigration that goes beyond that and, um, is before, before it, but it's a big motivator for people, um, that I've, that I've talked to to talk about sort of this, um, manifestation of Brazilian street carnival in the historical, uh, ex-colony or the ex-colonizer right um and sort of all the post-colonial manifestation of um of negotiation and relationship that uh occurs um in these carnival spaces in a completely different context in a in a different city but one that is very is very unique it's not carnival in in whatever country and in, in europe or the united states it's uh, it's a, in a space that is v- much more culturally resonant, um, in at least in sort of unpacking this colonial relationship between Brazil and Portugal. So that's that's the main project that I'm working on these days, and uh, as well as uh, working with you all in the future.
0: Oh, so just uh, before before we go. Um... Just wanted to use this opportunity since we're both editors of this journal to invite people to submit their work. So, if you anybody who's listening to us, if you're working with thinking about celebrations, fe- festivity, we're very happy to consider your submissions. We accept not only uh, academic articles but also uh, types of creative interventions, other things. So please contact us. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to me today.
1: Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. I just spoke with Andrew Snyder about Critical Brass, Street Carnival, and Musical Activism in Olympic Rio de Janeiro. It was published by Wesleyan University Press in 2022. I'm Isabel Machado. Until next time.